everyone. Welcome to the show after the show. This is the Nature Chat, where we talk about what happened on Nature Check and talk to one of the scientist players about who they are, what they do, what happened during the episode, some science stuff, all of that good stuff. Um, so as a recap of what happened during session three of Nature Check, uh, the heroes were immediately engaged in battle with some sort of, sort of uh, amphibious creatures. Um, they defeated those creatures and then set about... Uh, ow. Um, set about collecting gildeweed in the seagrass beds, um, and uh, as they were collecting gildeweed, uh, Fletcher accidentally pulled up a clump which freed a trapped water elemental, and so they were um, thrown into combat yet again, uh, but everyone survived, so yay. Um, they collected the gildeweed and also some stuff which was not gildeweed, but looked very much like it. Uh, they took all of their findings back to Elsa Wentz's apothecary shop, where she uh, paid them for their foraging, and then they went on to uh, the brothel to help uh, Carissa. Um, so Lucanus was able to barter to take her out for like a date night on the town um, by paying 10 gold uh, to get her out of the brothel, and then the group took her to a secluded beach spot gave her the gildeweed, and she transformed into her mermaid form and swam away into the ocean. So happy endings all around. And then um, there was some quick sale of weapons that had been found on the bodies of the weird uh, amphibious creatures from that first battle. And then we left on a bit of a cliffhanger because Artemis had just noticed um, a gentleman at the bar in the Marked Bird uh, complaining to the owner, Leon Feist, about something, but we don't know what yet. Um, so that's what happened during session three, uh, and we're here with one of our players, Ryan, who plays Fletcher. So thanks for hanging out with us on Nature Chat today, Ryan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Welcome. And so, yeah. So we were hoping that you could um, talk to us a little bit more about the person, the player behind Fletcher. Um, so uh, tell us a little bit more about what you do as a scientist, and um, you know, all all of the all of your your normal day when you're not casting spells. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, uh, currently I, uh, am, my title is an associate director of integrated pest management. Um, so I do much more, uh, applied science and, and, uh, program and people management, um, than research or what people think a, a scientist is just in a lab doing research. Um, but really, it's, you know, you can be applying science anywhere, doing a lot of different things. Um, so I, I manage IPM programs, but I also I do plant health care. Um, so nu nutritional problems, diseases of plants. Um, and I do this all in a public garden um, where we produce and maintain plants, um, you know, common bedding plants all the way through rare palms. Um, we've parts of our collection that are things that are, uh, you know, endemic to single square mile patches of land in places like Cuba. Um, and, and we have a specimen of that plant. Um, and so we, you know, we have to apply these, the scientific knowledge that's developed by people doing research. And we apply that actively to, to taking care of the plants. Um, and then I just, I do a lot of teaching and public speaking um, about mostly entomology. Um, I do, classes and, and field trips and all those kinds of things related to entomology. Um, so that's, that's what most of my day is nowadays. Um, you know, I got my PhD and, and then left academia immediately uh, and then started off in, in the nonprofit world. Um, so 
would you say like if you had to break down the percentage of your day that's spent like with you know bugs and plants versus the percentage of your day that's spent with people like what is you know what's the ratio there um well it's interesting because it's it's honestly all mixed together because doing plant healthcare um which I, I, I think of plant healthcare is the overall thing that you're doing. And IPM is just part of a bigger program of plant healthcare. Um, a lot of times entomologists get sucked into thinking of just IPM is how you take care of a plant, but it's absolutely not. Um, and so it's all those, all those deficiencies or problems or plant pests and, you know, scouting them, diagnosing them, coming up with management plans and assessing how things are working. Um, all of that, Part of that integrated management is people. It's not just the insects. So people are reporting things to me or diagnosing. I'm talking with them about what, how, you know, what they need to do or how things are going. Um, so it's really, it's, it's all tied together. And when you're, when you're doing, uh, when you're actually performing IPM or running these kinds of plant healthcare programs, it's, you can't exclude the people from it. And they're, and they're a huge part of the system. Um, and that often gets forgotten about when people are doing research on just, this is one kind of tactic we can do in IPM for this one kind of pest. And it's, well, if the person doing that isn't being, isn't managed properly, doesn't know what they're doing, they're not trained, it's all going to fall apart. Um, so it's honestly, it's, I, you know, like, I can't separate the percentages because it's, it, it's all one big wrapped up thing, honestly, when, when you're actually out there doing it. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm really glad you said that. I think, um, uh, a lot of people on, on both sides of, you know, whether you are a scientist or whether you're just thinking about scientists, forget that, yeah, we are beholden to our stakeholders and the people who need the information that we, um, that we are researching or the information that we are distributing to people. So I'm glad to hear you talk about um, the people that you work with in order to do integrated pest management. So um, I know that, like, all of us in this group sort of know what IPM is or like how it works but could you maybe explain a little bit more about like what is integrated pest management and how is that different than like other kinds of pest management well first i have a question so the um the place where you work ryan it's sort of like a kind of a zoo for plants right yeah it's, yeah it's, it's it's a living collection yeah yeah so and then people use that collection for um for research um, no, we actually, we don't have, it, it's, it's research or it's, it's collection specimens. Um, but we, we don't have like an herbarium, um, on site where people would use, you know, preserved pieces of specimens. Um, but we are right by the, uh, Carnegie Natural History Museum, which does have an herbarium. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the, in the plant world, um, you know, so the plant world is not, um, very much like the insect world. So we have um, like butterfly zoos where we go and, you know, people go and see the butterflies. But botanical gardens often act as um, sort of living, a living version of an insect collection. Um, yeah. And people will, um, you know, so like one of the things um, that people will do is there's a, a, a plant specimen, and I can't remember what exactly it is, that was originally collected and grown in the 1700s, and it's been in um, a, a botanical garden ever since. And they recently found um, herbicide resistance genes in it, so they're they're interested in figuring out why this was adapted. And so um, herbaria are used very differently in botanical research than insect zoos are in um, 
uh, entomological research, and I just wanted to um, clarify the sort of institution that um, you were a part of because it, it yeah. sort of becomes important. Yeah, and it, it's a lot of, um, whether it's conservatories or botanical gardens or arboreta, um, which are all different institutions, um, the the larger ones that have not only the space, but also the endowment and those sorts of things that can create a research program, um, they do, you know, they'll have land where they do research or for things um, or entire greenhouses that are for research and research is part of their mission. Um, and that's true for big things um, like the uh, Atlanta Botanical Garden, Missouri Botanical Garden, the Morton Arboretum outside Chicago. They do these kinds of active research programs. We just simply don't have the space currently to to function at that high of a degree of research. Um, but we are our pretty newly recently created research department is expanding in order to do research with what we what we have. Um, we are inside a public park in the city of Pittsburgh, so we're immediately constrained on our borders by the park. We can't move out of that, and then we're in a city. Um, so that's that's a, a that's a pretty different constraint than a lot of other gardens. So we can't expand. Um, but we, you know, we we just got a, a plant ecologist, so we're going to figure out things we can do with the land that we have, where we are growing native plants and those sorts of things, as well as um, urban ecology in the very large parks that Pittsburgh has, um, and to try to use the space we have to do research. So it, it's it's growing, and it'll certainly be different than a lot of the research other uh, botanical gardens do. Um, but but we'll definitely we're definitely going to start to break into our kind of own uh, special niche of research. Very exciting. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess my clarification question was: um, so yeah, yeah. What's, the, what's the difference between integrated pest management and other kinds of pest management that people might be more familiar with, or maybe we don't know anything about pests at all? Like, yeah. What does that mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think usually when people think of pest management, they're thinking of pest control, which usually traditionally, um, at least since the advent of like you know, the golden age of chemicals, chemistry for a better life, um, was spraying something to kill what you, what was bothering you. Um, and that, that's what pest control was. Um, but it, that's, you know, chemicals are only one tactic to manage uh, a pest issue. And so integrated pest management is, uh, a, developing a program that incorporates all the compatible methods for uh, managing an insect population for whatever your goal is, whether it's, you know, just keeping it below so it doesn't actually damage like our, you know, our crop so it doesn't reduce our yield or, or maybe it's a public health problem and your goal actually is extermination. You know, it's, it's you have to define your goal. You combine all the tactics that will help manage that problem. So cultural controls, physical controls, environmental controls, chemical controls, biological controls, if you're trying to control, you know, a pest insect with another insect, all of those um, different things that, that you can use simultaneously to help both prevent the problem and delay it from ever happening and then help decrease it um, after it, it does start to occur. And so that's, that's really the big difference between, I think, what people think of as the traditional pest control and what IPM actually tries to do. Um, and so I, my programs, I try to, I, we do combine 
every tactic we possibly can um, while, while actively avoiding chemicals, actually. Um, and we were at it about, we're at about a 75% decrease in the amount of uh, pesticide applications we do, um, just from the use of IPM. Um, and what we do use is, or is currently, um, organic rated materials if we have to apply a chemical. Um, and so it, when, when you're really dedicated to IPM, which is a lot more work to, to come up with and develop those programs, um, but you, you get really fantastic results. And, you know, most of the time, it'll, uh, some a pest will pop up and I'll say, oh, you know, I'm going to wait a week and see what's, what starts happening. And when you go back to it, it's being eaten and parasitized and just destroyed by beneficial insects that are constantly present because we're not spraying pesticides. And so we get this continuous preventive biological control just present. Um, and that kind of helps overlap between all the programs. And um, so it's a, it's, it's a much larger focus on the system that you're managing rather than just a single insect as a pest. Mm -hmm. It's thinking about the whole system. Yeah. And um, when you do that sort of work, um, you said, you said it, it takes more effort to do uh, integrated pest management rather than just break out the chemicals and start spraying. Um, so does the IPM sort of pay for itself in terms of like um, ecosystem services provided by the alternatives to chemicals or like, you know, does it pay for itself in terms of like, even though it might be more expensive in terms of time and resources at the outset, um, it winds up being less expensive than the chemicals in the long run, that kind of mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think most people end up seeing, um, if you're looking for just like the financial benefit, it's usually a, a, a benefit in the long run is that it ends up being you, because you are not, you know, sort of, you're not have that like addiction to the chemical and that's the only way to get rid of the problem. Um, uh, a lot of times you, you'll have uh, usually like a detox period where you're trying to do IPM and it'll be kind of rough for a little while um, because your, your only control is what you're trying to limit now. But once things are established, then you get into the period where you start having very few inputs um, in, into your system, whether it's chemical, biological, um, or even time management. You know, if it's people scouting or, you know, we do things of just, you know, hosing off plants at certain times of the year to just physically remove insects. Um, that will start to decrease over time. And so you're even though you, you have an initial big, bigger input sometimes, which people don't, they don't want that cost, um, that eventually goes away over time. You start saving money because of how little you're putting into the system to manage the problem. Um, because you're kind of helping the system balance back out by not just dumping into pesticides. And it's, and it's working for itself. Yeah. And yeah. It works for itself. And, and like you said, the part of that comes from like the ecosystem services that, when you're not using an insecticide, um, a lot of times, you know, if, if you're just spraying a, a you know, a, a broad spectrum insecticide and you're wiping out beneficial insects, you're not getting the help that they could provide you for controlling your pests. And so once those can call, you know, recolonize your area and start giving you that control, um, you, you, you're getting that benefit for free essentially. And so that's eliminating the cost of, buying chemicals or buying, you know, other beneficial insects that you're inundating into the system. You can start having, you know, locally, uh, 
local native things that are doing the control for you. And we see a lot of that. Like I love the summer because we open our greenhouses and stuff and we just get all these native things that are not then in and around those plants and we just get amazing control from them. Yeah. So um, why don't you guys use um, insecticides in the uh, facility that you work at? Um, it's just part of the overall um sort of green and sustainability goals of our institution. And we were really a leader in doing that for uh, within conservatory and public garden settings yeah. um, and pushing towards that. You know, the goal is complete elimination of using pesticides um, and focusing on an IPM that, you know, even though IPM does not mean we do not use chemicals, our goal is to end up having such a well-functioning IPM program for all of the issues you may have that we no longer have to use chemicals as part of that program. And so it's, it's our push to be the driver towards that and serve as a model for more people to be able to do this um, in, in the elimination of using those chemicals. Yeah. Um, so for the folks at home, uh, I actually had a specific, um, I have a follow-up question, but um, for the folks at home, uh, whenever you use a pesticide, there's this thing called a re-entry interval. So mm-hmm. um if you spray something, uh, you can't go into the facility for a set amount of time based on mm-hmm. what you're spraying. So like an organophosphate might have a longer pre-harvest interval than a pyrethroid. And, you know, yeah. those are two different pesticides with one of them being the OP organophosphate being more toxic than the pyrethroid. Yeah. Just by a little bit, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> by more than a little bit. Actually. Yeah, by a lot. That's either for using it in like a domicile, like a house or, or a office building or whatever, or into the field. Cause you said also harvest time, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's, there's uh, harvest intervals that you have to wait before you can harvest. And then there's, and there's entry intervals too, that, that, you know, if we, you know, we have greenhouses and we'd have to worry about that if we were using something in a greenhouse, because that's technically enclosed space production, which falls under agricultural use requirements on a label, which is when you usually start encountering those REIs or those reentry intervals. Yeah. So the question I had um, is, um, is one of the reasons why you guys don't use pesticides to keep your facility open for longer in other words, would the re-entry intervals, if you guys were to use a lot of pesticides, eventually harm, um, you know, tourism efforts and stuff like that? Um, it would only affect that. I, I think before and, and a lot of other places, um, I mean, I know of gardens that use, uh, you know, that they are closed certain days of the week because they are doing sprays. Mm-hmm. And like, that's still their method of control. Like, that's what we're trying to encourage people to get away from. Um or there's, there's other models. People simply uh, do their spraying after they're closed for the day. So their re-entry interval can be all through the night and then it's over before they open the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I th- and then one of the other benefits, um, and this kind of gets to the, what Cheryl was talking about with where you start seeing your, your savings and your benefit from doing IPM. Um, especially when you have something like greenhouses um, where if you need to spray something, your workers are there and then they can't go back into that greenhouse for four hours. You are essentially losing productivity time from them being able to work in that space. Um, Nobody can do anything in that space while that re-entry interval is active. 
Um, and so you, you're losing money because they're there at work and you're paying them, but they can't go in and do any additional portions of their job because there's that re-entry interval. Um, and so it, we don't, it's not that that isn't the reason why we're not using pesticides where, you know, our, we're not using those pesticides, uh, as, as a choice to this commitment that we've made. Um, but it, but it's one of the additional benefits that we get out of this in that, you know, if the most that we may use at a time would be, uh, you know, like a horticultural oil, which is going to be, you know, it's going to be like mineral oil you spray on a plant. And the only restriction is, you know, nobody go touch that plant until it's dry. That's, a, <laughs> that's essentially the limitation that's on the label. And so it's just, so then you just, Hey, like this is going to be sprayed on such and such bench. There's going to be the sign there. Just wait, you know, wait until it's dry, uh, but you can still continue to work in the entire rest of your greenhouse. Yeah. And so there isn't that time lost to, on, on the labor side of it. Yeah. No, I was, I was curious about like the time loss due to customer and labor and stuff like that. Yeah. And yeah. And, and yeah, so it's like you get around that, you know, in, you know, we, we are, con our conservatory portion of our, is open to the public as well as our outdoor gardens. And so it's like, yeah, you could get around that by just waiting till we're closed and then spraying something at dusk and then it'll be fine for people to come in the next day. Um, but, you know, but we've chosen to not be able to, we've chosen to go away from that yeah. um, and not say, oh, well, we could do that and just keep spraying and it wouldn't affect our business because people can still come in. Um, you know, we, we, we have a very, a very hard line delineation and where we, you know, we have, no, no pesticides that we use outdoors. We have extreme restrictions on things in the conservatory where the public interacts. Um, and then our greenhouses where we have, um, you know, licensed professionals working, um, we, we still have very strong restrictions. And if, if we're going to use anything basically more than horticultural oil, we have a whole system of assessing, do we need to do this? How are we going to inform everybody this is happening? Um, so that we, so that everyone knows, you know, this space is quarantined off and no one is allowed in there in, in a whole ordeal. Um, and so it, it's, it's part of our commitment to, to reducing uh, our chemical impact. Yeah. And, um, cause I've moved from the entomology to the weed side and I'm not going to mm -hmm. get very far into this at all because this would be an entire, this would be an entire nature chat in and of itself. <laughs> but, um, the weed side is actually, way way different than the insect side i didn't realize how different it was um uh when i came in because that's what i'm doing as well i'm doing ipm of uh, plant pests and not insect pests and uh, mm -hmm. it is it is so far removed and that's a subject you and i should get into on another one of these so um but yeah oh, yeah the the difference in in how different pest classes and in different systems and and the way that the, that research has been done in these different sectors all together and how they manage these things. Um, when it's like, you know, you know, it, yeah, it, it's just very interesting how it's yeah. become so different between these different realms of, of different pests. Yeah. And I would, I would love to um, discuss that with you on another one of these, but um, yeah. So um, the, the sort of pests you deal with um, are largely just, um, how do they get in and what do you, what do you deal with? Um, we have, I'd say we have the pretty typical greenhouse pests. 
that greenhouses all across probably, you know, Canada, Europe, United States, everywhere deals with um, like green peach aphid and potato aphids, tobacco whitefly, flower thrips, greenhouse thrips. You know, these, these are the things everybody deals with because they can just, they're so highly polyphagous. They, they feed on so many things that they'll survive on something in your facility. Yeah. They just will. And then they'll move into, you know, when you start making a very big crop of something, then they, they'll move into that and be very happy with it. Um, so we deal with a lot of that. And so we kind of have known players in our greenhouses that as we monitor, we, and you, we start to see something increase. We, you know, it's usually a pretty good indicator like, Oh, that's probably going to be our like pest du jour for this season. Um, yeah. It kind of changes year to year. Um, but then we, um, we have a lot of tropicals. Um, that's kind of our indoor thing is that, you know, we have a palm room and a tropical room and orchid room. Um, and uh, a tropical forest exhibit that changes. And so we get, we get plants from uh, whose origin is from other countries. And so sometimes we end up with weird things. Um, and so that's when you get the really interesting challenges of trying to uh, figure out what the pest is. Um, you know, I've had, I've had something before that, you know, I diagnosed it, tracked it down, found that it was recorded in, like two counties in Florida and that was it in the United States. Oh boy. And so I had to, so got confirmation of what it was from the Florida state hemipterist and, and then sent them where we think we got the plants from. Cause it would, they would, didn't know it had spread to that location. Um, and then we were up here in Pittsburgh and we also had it, oh, <laughs> which, great. which is kind of, a, so it's like, it's not something that would be known here at all. Um, and that's where it, it's really, the part of IPM with diagnosing and figuring out what you're dealing with and learning about its biology so you can figure out how to control it really comes into play. Yeah, because there's been, there's been, um, that reminds me of uh, uh, the um, gold spotted oak borer over in California. So um, I don't know how widely this story is known, but uh, there's this insect in California that's destroying oak trees and um, beforehand, it was found, it was known from Arizona from, s like, six specimens. Mm -hmm. Like, we, like, we knew it existed, but had never really seen it before, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, everything, all the oak trees in California are, you know, it's just a really interesting story, because it's, it's so similar to this one that I've heard before, um, and it sounds like you guys uh, pretty narrowly avoided it really yeah. bad ecological disaster. I guess yeah. that's what I was going to ask you about. So, like, how often is that a thing where, like, you get plants from other places? I know that that's, you know, if you've ever traveled between countries, you know that, like, oh, you're supposed to claim if you're bringing organics with you or you're not really supposed to bring organics with you because we don't want this transfer of uh, pests or other invasive species. So, like, how often is that a problem that, like, your garden gets new specimens from somewhere and they you know, they just have hitchhikers. Yeah. Um, luckily it's not that often because they go through those inspections, you know, as they, as they're crossing borders coming through, uh, you know, they're, they're inspected. Um, and so most of the time it's a case where it's like, what I was talking about, the plant material, it had, it was eggs laid inside the plant tissue. So unless yeah. someone was specifically looking for that and was doing, either a fluorescent or a dye based 
assay to try to find these eggs, they would not have found these eggs. Um, and so, so sometimes it, they're, they can be hard to detect. Um, but luckily, because we're usually, it's tropical material that we get, um, and we're putting it in greenhouses in, in the conservatory, um, it, it's not a concern because once winter rolls around, it would all just die. Right. Um, and its host plant is something tropical that will not live outside here in the winter. Um, and so we luckily kind of have that like yearly quarantine, that tropical things that come up into Pennsylvania, um, at least for now, the winters are, the winter actually occurs and gets cold enough that, that it will wipe things out. Right. Um, <laughs> so it's usually more of like, it's usually more of a concern for us to just figure it out and come up with an immediate plan for us to deal with it. Yeah. So, um, the sorts of plants you get, um, you mentioned you had some, uh, pretty rare and endangered ones. Um, what's the, what's the story behind them? Um, so it's usually, uh, in our, in the rotating exhibit we have, that's, uh, represents different tropical forest biomes from different countries. Um, each, each show runs for about three years. Um, and they, they try to, they go on tr uh, curatorial trips to the countries to look at what the wildlife is. Um, and they usually try to come up with certain plants that are endemic to regions in that country. So, so the plant only occurs in that area. And that's the only place it occurs in the entire world. Um, so it's kind of like uh, in the session that we just played, that plant that only occurred and, you know, that patch of beach in the shallows, it was endemic to that area. Um, and so, you know, so right now our exhibit is all about Cuba mm -hmm. and there are certain, um, very small cycads or, and little palms, um, that some are from, it's something like, I think we, there's a palm that, that, um, specimen, people have specimens as part of the conservation effort for these plants, which is mm -hmm. why we have the specimen of the plant. Um, and it's like, it occurs in, it's something like. It's like a three or four square kilometer section of Cuba or something is is the only place the planet exists. Yeah, and and so it, and so we we have it as to be not only part of the conservation effort of that plant, um, but to but because we we're conservatories, we're a living museum. It's also part to educate people about you know there are there are species that you know even without climate change and all the other impacts humans are have on, having on the world, they've basically always kind of been on the brink because they only exist in these little patches mm -hmm. of land. Um, and that's, so that's part of the education that we're putting out there to people as well. And those are the ones that are very fragile and are most likely to be heavily impacted by even small changes in habitat loss or in climate change and weather yeah. patterns. Yeah, they, it's like they, they, they're so limited where they live because it's such a special place that they live and they're specialized to live there. And so, yeah, it, anything changes that and well, things just aren't going to live there anymore. Sometimes it can, sometimes it can also be the opposite though. Um, you know, like with that gold spotted oak borer I mentioned earlier, um, you know, we knew about it, um, for less than, you know, we knew about it from less than 10 specimens and just gets into a slightly different area and, you know, that area just so happens to be better. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, yeah. And that's when you, that gets into the whole, 
you know, what, how, what makes something able to be invasive, you know, discussion. Um, and, 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 and then that gets into, well, part of that is we, a lot of times we make it easy for things to be invasive because, oh, you know, that landscape was dominated by people planting oaks as ornamental trees or et cetera, et cetera. And so when it was able to get into a place where it's all irrigated oak trees across yeah. California, it can just run right through and decimate everything. Yeah. Um, or like, or like dandelions. It's, you know, it's this <laughs> plant that loves low competition, freshly disturbed areas. Yeah. And now we have that in the form of agriculture and lawns. Yeah. 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 You, yeah. Weeds that, yeah. It's like they're, yeah. They can be invasive because it's, they'll grow where other things won't and yeah. they, they capitalize on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And the, uh, um, so there's, um, do you guys keep a lot of, uh, medicinal plants in, in there and, um, what, uh, I guess what sort of cultural relevance do a lot of the plants that you keep have on, in addition to the conservation relevance? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the the biggest part of that is again our tropical forest exhibit because it's it's a it's it's representing the the country that they're from, but not not only the biodiversity of the country, but the culture of the country as well. And so we do always include plants that are of usually we have plants of medicinal importance um things in in interpretation about you know this plant is has traditionally used for treating fever or headaches or whatever that may be um and then traditional plants of agricultural importance too um so we'll have a lot of a lot of cool things that people have never even heard of before as a food um but then we just have them in the conservatory so i i get I eat a lot of weird things that people, a lot of people have never heard or eaten before in North, at least in the United States um, awesome. that I just get to pull off of trees and eat all the time. Um, uh, Give us an example. Um, uh, well, there, there's uh, we have a species called the Malabar plum. That's actually in the Myrtle family. Okay. Um, and it's, it's now my favorite fruit. Um <laughs> And we have a, a big, big tree of it. And it produces these fruits that basically smell and taste like roses, like rose water. Oh. Oh. Um, but are, and then are, it's basically uh, an outer shell that you eat and is then totally hollow inside with a like loosely connected to a uh, loose rattling around uh, big brown seed that's in the middle. Mm-hmm. And they, they, and so they're, they're not juicy. Because there's no flesh, it's just this shell around it. That's it's you like eat. a rose-flavored cracker. Yeah, um, huh. but but it's still yeah, but it's not dry. But it's it doesn't you know it doesn't have flesh like like a peach or an apple or all yeah. like. Um, huh. and it, it's it's my favorite fruit. Um, that's cool. Where's yeah. Um, I think I think Southeast Asia. I think that was put in when we had our Thailand exhibit. I I want to say I I think Southeast Asia. Uh, Syzygium jambos is the species name. Oh, a lot of S's and Z's in that one. Yeah, it, it is. <laughs> oh, that's... Man, we should have a nature chat all about scientific nomenclature. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh, my God. Especially plants. When people come in and they're like, juniper cedar. And I'm like, that doesn't mean anything. Okay. Yeah, that that's... 
in plants like what you call a cedar is a is in juniperus and all and it's just like you need like you need to have a scientific name or it's like it doesn't mean anything yeah like we, we had someone talking someone came and was giving a talk at our conservatory um and kept talking about swamp maple and we were all like what what is swamp maple and then and then he finished and someone finally asked and he was like he was like oh you know swamp you know acer rubrum and we were like red maple <laughs> and, he, and it was, he was like where he was from in the i think rhode island in the northeast he was like they call them swamp maple oh my gosh. and i was yeah. like you confused everybody this whole talk because you never gave the scientific name yeah and, I, mean, I, I have I recognize that like common names are useful but like for you know for people who don't want to memorize all of these ridiculous latin names but like man they can get so messy yeah oh, i would I have a rant that I go on about <laughs> common about the usage of common names and you know when we when we do our common scientific name episode um I'm just going to go on a rant with all the hot takes cuz I truly believe that the only reason that society hasn't adopted scientific names for insects is just purely s- circular reasoning on the part of scientists and I have like a whole 10 minute uninterrupted rant that I could go on about this topic. And I'm probably like not even the only person in the scientific community. I feel like most of us could just get angry enough about this for 10 minutes just to go on a rant. Everybody's got something. Yeah. Yeah. My biggest thing with that issue actually is, is the whole, you know, science communication aspect, because I, I try so hard to sort of, do my science and also make it accessible to people. And so um, when I do, there's a a science symposium that is held at my uh, research facility, um, which is really cool because that means all of the land managers and stewards um, show up and get to hear about the research we're doing, which is great. But they're not... Um, not versed in the same sort of scientific disciplines that the researchers are. And so when I talk about like the dung beetles I study, um, they wanted to know that was one of the most common questions for the audience is, oh, well, what are the common names for these insects? And I was like, they don't have common names because that's literally a thing. Like there are tens of thousands of species of insects that don't have a common name at all. And the only way you can refer to them is by their scientific name. And there's actually um, my first time at Entsoc, I was blown away by the idea that like there's a committee that has to vote on and approve like newly submitted common names for insects, which I didn't know was a thing. I thought common names just sort of like came out of, you know, the common people and like that's what you call that thing. But yeah, so yeah. the naming thing is just <laughs> Well, we need to there's there's some common names that I feel like we really need to change. Not because they're useless, because all common names are useless. They have absolutely no <laughs> practical use whatsoever. Um, but, uh, well, if you want to get really nitpicky, uh, species is just a social construct. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just lines and artificial lines. And, and, you know, I, I've pissed off taxonomists by pointing this out before, <laughs> but they are artificial lines and yeah. pure gradients. And, you know, the only, f- the only reason those lines ever break is because things go extinct. But, um, uh, no, um, like the Oriental cockroach, for example, and this isn't even the most offensive thing that I yeah. can think of because there are butterflies that are, you know, there's a butterfly that's named after the N-word. Um, mm. But uh, uh, like, I would really like to see some of these common names change because they get fixed in, you know, early in culture. And then as culture evolves and we start to think to ourselves, hey, these names are 
you know, harmful to specific groups of people. I think, um, oh, Terry McGlynn was talking about the gypsy moth. Yeah. 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 Um, or gypsy ant. He had had named an ant the gypsy ant before when he hadn't thought of the connotation of the word. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd like to see some of those change. Um, but no, uh, other, other question, the, um, medicinal plants, uh, that you guys Mm -hmm. have, do you guys, um, uh, do you guys have um, any that would be considered uh, medicinal? And, you know, what sort of um, precautions do you have to take with those? Um, there's no there's no precautions that we have to take. Um, and besides what, what we have in the tropical forest, we have um, the, like a more traditional uh, European medicinal plant garden that we have outside, which is probably the things people are more familiar with in the united states um so like have we like we have a, like an apothecarist's rose where you get the really big um rosebuds that you can harvest and dry and turn into teas and stuff um uh, uh, and like chamomile um and, and and lavender and those sorts of things like so we we just kind of display those those things um and so people are really familiar with them and and there's no there's no precautions really like people are taking them from us or like eating so much of it's going to cause some bad effect or something. Um, cause we have, you know, an individual specimen of each plant. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, um, when I was, Oh God, I want to say this was, um, so there are, there was, um, and I'm not going to say, I decided to not say where it was, but one of the schools that I've gone to, um, has a uh, peyote plant in their um mm. in their uh, uh, garden and they have um a specific section of plants that are culturally relevant um for religious ceremonies that are um hallucinogens and I don't remember exactly the only one that I remember is peyote but mm. um they actually have it um sort of in the back and not really visible and it's unlabeled and um you're not going to find it the way that they have it. And that's, I think I can, I think that's about all I can say about how they um, hide yeah. it. So that's an interesting consideration though. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we don't, we don't have anything like that. Um, otherwise we, otherwise, yeah, you would have to make some kind of consideration. I think the only thing, I think the thing we worry about the most is probably like our desert room because we have, open cacti like cacti just all over next to paths and things and so it's like that's that's probably the only thing we really have to worry about (laughs) yeah yeah so the um you know to go back in the um to the session you know it's not like you have little fish guards running around and Mm. (laughs) armed with crossbows yeah I just want to say, speaking of like uh, uh, safety things with plants, I was like, "Oh man, Lucanus is chewing on a plant that he has no idea." What it is. <laughs> I was like, oh boy. <laughs> yeah, no, and I did that specifically so we could bring it up and you know talk about like, yeah. you know, like what plants are edible and what plants are medicinal, and um, yeah, I tried to I tried to make a little biosecurity boo boo so that. Um, you know, you could talk about like, how do people, how are people supposed to interact with the plants here? Cause I'm sure that they do it in a very different way than, um, you know, they might do it in the wild. Like even, even if I knew what sort of, um, 
you know, plants were edible, if I were to go and, you know, pick off a fruit and start eating it in your conservatory, you would probably not be very happy with me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, like, what are the sort of differences, like, between how people act in the wild or how people act, you know, in the conservatory? Um, I don't know how much I should talk into that because we saw a lot of my own like opinion about people interacting with our space. Um, yeah. Oh, that's fair. There, I didn't consider but there, that. There is there is definitely a difference in that you know it when people are in an experience that is that is fairly built for them to experience it. They feel much more. Um, allowance and ownership to do what they wish versus um, in the wild. That's that's odd because I would not think about like walking through, you said it's a museum for plants. So I wouldn't think about walking through Chicago's field museum and licking uh, specimens. Um, (laughs) But I can definitely see what you mean. Oh, well, this is a, this is a controlled environment versus the wild or, or as the new Seychester people call it, the out there, right. And the out there is very dangerous and it's not controlled, but like, Oh, well, if the plants are in the conservatory, they must be safe. Right. So I can definitely see that like cognitive disconnect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so well, yeah, uh, yeah. thank you for talking to us more about what you do, Ryan, and yeah. talking to us about uh, endemic plants and pest management and, you know, all kinds of cool stuff. I, yeah, what you do is really neat. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, no, the, I do a whole host of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, keeping, keeping plants safe is one of the most, um, interesting and complicated, uh, fields. And as I yeah. said, I'd love to, um, you know, I'd love to uh, explore the difference between um, what you do and what I do in uh, yeah. a nearby episode. So Yeah, definitely. So, cool. All right. Yeah. Thanks, guys, yeah. for having that t- talk. And uh, thank yeah. you, everyone, for watching Nature Chat. Um, don't forget to tune in live on Twitch or on YouTube, Periscope, whatever, for uh, session four of Nature Check, where we're going to have our first special guest. So uh, we will see you guys later. Yeah. Take care. Ah. Bye-bye.